Welcome to the AI Events Podcast, your front row seat to exciting scholarly debates on pressing national issues. With new episodes every week, never miss out on the conversation and stay up to date on topics important to you. To hear more, check out our other channels related to education, domestic policy, and international issues. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome. I'm Dan Cox, the director of the Survey Center on American Life and resident fellow at AEI. On behalf of AI, it's my privilege to host a discussion for a remarkable new book, Secular Surge, a new fault line in American politics. As someone who has spent the better part of a decade exploring the scope and nature of religious change in the US and the growth of non-religion, I was excited to see these subjects tackled in such a rigorous and thoughtful way. Relying on a host of new surveys, including a survey of American humanists, innovative experiments, and an entirely new measurement strategy, Authors David Campbell, Jeffrey Lehman, and John Green have provided a new way of understanding one of the most misunderstood religious groups in the country. Americans who are religiously unaffiliated, also known as the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, now account for nearly one in four Americans in the US. And they have a, are having profound impact uh, on American society. They represent a critical part of the democratic coalition. Roughly four in 10 Democrats are now non-religious, making the nuns the single largest religious constituency in the party. They are also challenging fundamental ideas about national identity and, and the public role of religion in the US. But although their influence is undeniable, uh, the nuns have been a source of significant disagreement about who they are, what they care about, and if anything, what defines them. They have served as sort of a religious Rorschach test. People see in them what they wanna see. So committed atheists believe the growth of the nuns is a sure sign of secularization. While many religious Americans believe that the group is primarily composed of unattached believers, uh, who hold con conventional religious beliefs despite their lack of institutional attachment. And these disagreements and differing perspectives have hampered our ability to identify the causes of religious disaffiliation and to better understand how the growth uh, of the nuns will affect American politics and culture in the future. Campbell, Lehman, and Green have taken an important step forward in ending some of these debates, although their findings will likely inspire entirely new ones. Because we only have a short amount of time, I'm going to do brief introductions of the authors and the panelists and then turn it over to our presenters who will provide an overview of the book's findings. Afterwards, our esteemed panelists will have an opportunity to comment, critique, and offer some questions. So, beginning with the authors, David Campbell is the Packy J.D. Professor of American Democracy at the University of Notre Dame and chairperson of the Political Science Department. His book, American Grace, How Religion Divides and Unites Us, which he co-authored with Robert Putnam, won the 2011 Woodrow Wilson Award uh, from the American Political Science Association for the best book on government politics or international affairs. John Green is Director Emeritus of the Ray C. Bliss Institute of Applied Politics and a distinguished professor of political science at the University of Akron. Dr. Green has done an extensive research on American religious communities and politics. He is the co-author of numerous books and articles, including The Diminishing Divide, Religion's Changing Role in American Politics, and The Faith Factor, How Religion Influences American uh, Elections. He's also served as, as a senior research advisor at the Pew Research Center. Jeffrey Lehman is a professor of political science at the University of Notre Dame. He is author of The Great Divide, Religious and Cultural Conflict in American Politics, and the co-editor of the Journal of Political Behavior. His current research focuses on political causes and consequences of growing secularism in the US, activists in American party politics, and increasing polarization of America's political parties. And turning to our panelists, first, Ross Douthit is an opinion columnist for the New York Times and a visiting fellow at AEI. He's the author of five books, including most recently, The Decadent Society, How We Became the Victims of Our Own Success, published by Simon & Schuster in 2020. He co-hosts the Times op-ed podcast, The Argument, and serves as a film critic uh, for National Review. He previously served as a senior editor at The Atlantic. And finally, Michelle Borstein is a religion reporter at The Washington Post. Since 2006, she covered American faith, spirituality, and meaning making. She re she's received uh, awards from the Religion Newswriters Association for overall excellence in religion reporting in 2011, 2013, and 2017, and was awarded the Neiman Fellowship in 2016 by the Neiman Foundation for Journalism at Harvard. Thank you all for joining us. Now I'll turn it over to David, who will begin the presentation. Well, thank you very much, um, Dan. Let me begin by saying, um, we're grateful for those generous uh, introductions. So as Dan mentioned, um, we're here to talk about secularism, or what we call the secular surge. And while in this presentation, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, some trends and some sort of basic findings from the book, I just want to assure you that 
what we're doing today is merely a small sample, a taste of uh, what, what's in the book. We wanted to be uh, selective and also to sort of leave some things hanging. So if you want to learn more, uh, you'll have to go and buy the book. But I want to start today uh, by talking about something Dan mentioned in his introduction, and that is the rise of what are often called the nuns or people who do not have a religious affiliation. What you're looking at on the screen is a chart that I'm guessing many people have seen or seen something like it, which shows the growth of Americans who say they have no religion or who say they never attend religious worship services or say that they are non-believers in God. And you can see that in all three cases, there has been an increase. Now, those lines are not exactly the same because those are not the same thing. But in all three cases, we see an increase. And what we are interested in exploring is what does it mean to say that America is experiencing this secular surge? Because for all the attention that the nuns as a group receive, it occurred to us a few years ago that that is a large group. And clearly there must be distinctions among them. There must be distinctions within the secular population that will help us understand what their impact on American politics or American civic life uh, might be. It's a little bit like trying to group all religious believers together. We know there are important differences across religious traditions. And so we thought, well, maybe the same thing applies uh, when we're looking at the secular or the non-religious population. So if we could go to the next slide, I want to introduce the fundamental insight as we see it of this book. And that is a distinction between people who are not religious versus those who are secular. And what we mean by that, because those terms might seem like synonyms, is that non-religion is simply what people are not. And that's usually the way we've understood this changing population in the U.S. is just by taking our standard measures of religiosity, whether people say they have a religious affiliation, whether they attend religious services, whether they believe in God, and just flipping them around and saying, well, you're not religious, of course, if you don't do those things. Well, there's another way to think about secularism, which is not by defining yourself by what you are not, but rather by what you are. And so we set about trying to understand people who have a secular worldview and developed a series of measures that we detail in the book and we'd be happy to talk more about in the Q&A session. But just basically, this is um, a set of questions we ask people on a survey to determine whether or not they see the world through a secular lens. Do they have secular beliefs? Do they take on a secular identity? Importantly, and this is critical to understanding the way we differentiate between non-religion and secularism, when we ask people about their secular worldview, we are not counterpoising it against religion. What do I mean by that? Well, we ask people questions like, to understand the world, we must free our minds from old traditions and beliefs. Or we ask about the great works of philosophy and science as a source of truth, wisdom, and ethics. In other words, we're not asking people about whether they've rejected religion. We're just asking about whether or not they embrace secularism. And what that means is in our way of organizing the world, it's possible for someone to have both a secular worldview and still be religious. Just to give you a, a taste of what we mean, if we could move to the next um, slide. Because we have these two measures of non-religion and of secularism, we can create every political scientist's dream of a two-by-two two table. So you can be high or low in either one of those categories, and that creates four different cells. And the first of these, I think, is pretty straightforward. These are people that we call religionists. Uh, these are people who attend religious services. They have a strong belief in God. Religion is an important part of their life. This should seem intuitive to people. We've been talking about religious Americans for many, many years, and of course, they're a very, very important part of our civic and political landscape. We can move to the next slide. What we've done here is with these photos, illustrated what we envision each of these groups doing on a Sunday morning. So there you see the religionists in worship. Here we have the group that we call the non-religionists. So these are people who are just simply low on religiosity. They're not very religious, but neither do they have this secular worldview. So they're really not anything. And what are they doing on Sunday morning? Well, they're just kicking back on their own, watching a football game. The next group, if we could click here, 
are the secularists. So these are people who both don't have much religion in their life and they have embraced this secular worldview. And what are they doing on Sunday morning? Well, they're getting together for brunch and they're probably talking about the latest issue of the New Yorker or something. Um, which brings us to the fourth group. And this is the group that when I've spoken about this to uh, various audiences that maybe takes a moment to sink in, the religious secularists. And I acknowledge that those words sound like opposites. How could we put religious and secularist next to each other? Well, these are the people who are reasonably high on a measure of religiosity. So they attend religious services, they consider themselves part of a religious community. But at the same time, they also have a secular worldview. Who are these people? Well, a fair number of American Jews fall into this category, but so do a lot of mainline Protestants, a fair number of Catholics, even a fair number of black Protestants, not so many white evangelicals, not so many Mormons, but nonetheless a reasonably large share of the population. And so the picture we have here is of a church, it's probably, a, I'm guessing, a, an Episcopalian church um, where, yes, people are participating in a religious community, but they still have this secular outlook on life. We could go to the next slide. This shows you the breakdown of these four groups in the US population. And so you can see, not surprisingly, that even with the secular surge, religionists are still the largest share of the American population, but by no means a majority. But next in line are the secularists which suggests that America is a more secular nation than perhaps many uh, appreciate. And then you can see that the remaining two groups, the non-religionists, the people who are sort of on the sidelines of religion and of civic life as well, um, they're a relatively small share of the population, as are the religious um, secularists. Relatively small, but hardly non-negligible. And so much of what we do in the book is try to understand how these different groups behave and how they think. And so just to give you a taste of that, I'm going to turn things over now to uh, Jeff Lehman, who's going to talk a little, about, a little bit about the political beliefs of these four groups. So Jeff, over to you. Okay, thanks a lot, Dave. Yeah, so I'm gonna, as Dave said, talk about what this all means for politics. And the short story is it means a great deal. And so what you're looking at here are data from um, our own national survey uh, of Americans. So these are ordinary Americans broken down uh, into our religionist, non-religionist, and secularist category. We'll bring in the somewhat strange religious secularists in a minute. Um, and you're looking at the percentage of people who call themselves liberals, who call themselves Democrats, who are liberal on economic issues like uh, government providing health insurance, government providing childcare, liberal on cultural issues. Um, so these would be people who are pro-choice, who support same-sex marriage, who support transgender rights, and then the percentage of people who voted for Hillary Clinton in 2016. And you can see the mistake that we would make or how misleading it would be for our understanding of secularism and politics if we didn't separate out the non-religionists from the secularists, if we just considered all nuns uh, as a single entity. Um, because the non-religionists, frankly, don't look that much different from the religionists. The religionists, of course, are the least likely to be liberal, to be Democrats, to be liberal on economic issues, cultural issues, and to vote for Clinton. But the non-religionists are not that much different on most of these measures. But the secularists, on the other hand, the people who, who really have true secular beliefs and identities, they look much different. They are very liberal. They are very likely to identify with the Democratic Party. And they're liberal on all kinds of issues, not just the cultural and moral issues, but also economic issues, environmental issues, uh, immigration, and so on. And they were very, very likely to vote for Hillary Clinton in 2016, whereas the non-religionists really were not. Uh, a pretty substantial majority of the non-religionists voted for Donald Trump in 2016. So stark differences between uh, these two groups of nuns, secularists and non-religionists. Next slide, please. This is the same thing. We're just bringing in the religious secularists. Uh, and they're sort of somewhere in the middle between the non-religionists and the secularists. 
Um, not much like the religionists, interestingly. And then another really important political difference here is uh, difference in voter turnout or political participation in general. We typically, these political scientists typically have thought about the nuns, people who are non-religious as being non-participatory, staying out um, of politics mostly. Um, and you can see that the non-religionists actually are the least likely to vote. The secularists, on the other hand, their affirmative commitment to secular beliefs and identities actually drives them to participate. So they are nearly as um, likely to participate in politics as religionists. And you can see here, they're just as likely to turn out to vote. So this is not only a very liberal and democratic constituency, it's a constituency that participates in politics at, at fairly impressive levels. I'm gonna bring us home by talking about what this means for party politics, and it, it matters a great deal there as well. What you're looking at here is um, data from our, our own 2017 national survey, as well as um, surveys of delegates to the party's national conventions, as well as various state level conventions. And you can see here that there is a sharp secular religious divide between the parties, whether we're talking about ordinary uh, men and women who identify themselves as Democrats or Republicans in the mass electorate, or we're talking about national or state convention delegates, there is a sharp divide between the two parties. For every one of those groups of Democrats, secularists are the plurality category, and for every type of Republicans, religionists are the plurality category. And I think one thing that's particularly interesting about this slide is how little geography seems to matter for the secular religious divide across the various state party conventions. Um, there are some differences between states within parties. So Texas Democrats are a bit less likely to be secularists than Washington state Democrats. Illinois Republicans are a bit less likely to be religionists than Utah Republicans. But the differences between parties vastly outweigh the interstate differences within parties. And we need look no farther than the great state of Texas to see that. We have the same state here, Republican delegates and Democratic delegates, yet a strong majority of the Republican delegates in Texas are religionists and a clear plurality of the Democratic delegates in Texas are secularists. So even within a single state, there's a sharp secular religious divide and that exists across the country. At the same time, you can get sort of a sense here that there may also be some intra-party divisions, divisions within the parties, not as much for the Republicans, but certainly for the Democrats. Secularists are the ascendant group in democratic politics at all levels. Um, but religionists as well as non-religionists represent a substantial portion of the party, um, whether we're talking about party identifiers or the activists and leaders who attend these conventions. And that's important for democratic politics because it really um, underlies the battle within the Democratic Party between the very liberal progressive wing of the party and the more moderate pragmatic wing of the party. Secularists are really the bedrock of the progressive wing. Democratic secularists are extremely liberal on all kinds of policy issues. Religionists within the Democratic Party are considerably more moderate. Um, and so this divide between progressives and pragmatists within the party is really shaped in a fundamental way by the secular religious divide. And we can see that playing out in battles over Democratic Party presidential nominations. Here, uh, we're looking at how state Democratic convention delegates uh, felt about the Hillary Clinton-Bernie Sanders battle in 2016. Uh, for our four categories. And you can see religionists overwhelmingly supported Hillary Clinton. Non-religionists weren't that much different. Religious secularists were evenly divided, but the secularists um, strongly supported Bernie Sanders. And in other data from 2020, we show uh, a very similar divide between Biden supporters on the one hand and supporters of Sanders and Elizabeth Warren on the other hand. 
So there's a clear secularist uh, religionist divide within the Democratic Party. Um, and that's particularly important because this divide lines up pretty cleanly with some of the core constituencies in the Democratic Party. Um, and I'm thinking about three constituencies in particular. One is college-educated white Democrats, a group that is increasingly supporting the Democratic Party. College-educated white Democrats in our data are very secularist. Um, on the other hand, two other core Democratic constituencies are not very secular. One of those is, of course, people of color, especially African-Americans. These Democrats are mainly religionists. And then finally, uh, white working class people who used to be uh, a bedrock Democratic group are not as much, but still the Democrats need a significant number of their votes. Non-college educated white uh, Democrats are by and large non-religionists. So to win elections, um, Democrats have to sort of walk a tightrope across this secular religious divide. They have to win the strong support of secularists. They have to win the support of many religionists as well as many non-religionists. And that's not such an easy task. The task would seem to be easier for the Republican Party. They're overwhelmingly religionists. So just double down on uh, faith-based appeals. And that's what the Republicans typically have done. And it served them well in, in a lot of circumstances. However, um, in the book, we find that the emergence of Donald Trump as the centerpiece of the Republican Party has at least some potential to open up a divide, not between religionists and secularists, but between religionists and non-religionists. Um, what you're looking at here are data from January 2016, very early in the 2016 Republican primary process. And um, we're looking at really, we've grouped the candidates into four groups. One is Donald Trump. He's a group unto himself. Uh, we have Christian conservatives. That's Ted Cruz and Ben Carson. We group together uh, establishment, more moderate candidates like Jeb Bush, John Kasich, and Marco Rubio, and then everybody else. We see that both the Republican religionists and the Republican non-religionists favored Trump over any of the other candidates. But there's a pretty striking difference between these two groups. Non-religionists were considerably more likely than religionists to prefer Trump as the party's nominee. Why is that? Well, there's lots of reasons, but one reason is that Trump's core appeals, uh, white racial grievance, restrictionist policies on immigration, anti-free trade, those just happen to be more appealing to Republican non-religionists than they are to Republican religionists. So as the Trump wing of the party becomes increasingly dominant, or at least influential, that creates some potential for a religionist, non-religionist divide within the Republican Party. So just our takeaway points, um, we really have four in the book, but two we've talked about today. One is all secular people are not alike. We can distinguish between people who are truly secular, committed to secular beliefs and identities, and people who are just simply none who are non-religious but not committed to secularism. And there are clear differences, uh, political differences between those groups, differences in their levels of political participation, uh, and secularists are far more liberal on policy issues and a lot more likely to identify with the Democratic Party than non-religionists. Second main point is that there's a secular religious divide becoming embedded in party politics. There's a clear divide between the parties, but there are also divides within the parties. There's an important divide between secularists and religionists, as well as non-religionists within the Democratic Party. And there's at least some potential for a religionist, non-religious divide to emerge within the Republican Party. Great, I think Michelle will kick us off uh, for her reactions. So one of the things you touched on in the book is trying to picture this as a movement, you know, I mean, beyond sort of polls and that kind of thing, trying to see people identifying with this, you know, and, and until you see something, you can't imagine it, like the idea that there would be white evangelicals as a cohesive group, for example. So I wanted to just see if, if there's a way to think about what might, you know, I was trying to imagine myself as a reporter covering this, you know, this movement and, um, you know, 
who are the who are its kind of stars and is there some pop culture element to it like how would Americans kind of attach to this so I was wondering about if you thought about sort of you know what whether concern about religion's influence would be enough to galvanize people um, whether I was thinking about the vaccines and the way in which in some of your questions about what makes somebody secular one of the some of the questions had to do with tangible evidence and science and that sort of thing so I was wondering if people could be secularized and galvanized around what happened during the pandemic with vaccines, if that could be sort of a moment. Um, so that was my first point is kind of thinking about this idea of, you know, I'm trying to envision it as a movement and what would be its narratives and that sort of thing. The second point um, was, you know, and again, this is all in the book, but just about this, you know, this, this idea of being uh, atheist or secular still being negative you know, still being seen as a negative and to what degree, um, you know, the book talks about how, you know, people are more comfortable with candidates who say they're not religious compared to saying they don't believe in God or they are secular. Um, and I was remembering um, just this moment, I mean, just this morning, seeing a bumper sticker that said, uh, Jesus, and this is thinking about the language about it, um, it said, Jesus isn't a religion, it's a relationship and just how people's feelings about religion and the word religion um, play into this. So um, anyway, I was just thinking about uh, sort of, you know, whether whether the, these recent years have affected the brand of religiosity. You know, during the Trump years, there was so much debate about the church's role, um, whether secularism looked moral in comparison to some people and that kind of thing. Um, the, and number three is, you know, obviously the backdrop of all this, I was thinking about what's going on in religion overall, you know, the big, the big sweep of things and a lot of, a lot of what we've been trying to figure out, which is why part of the reason this book is so helpful is sort of these nuns and, um, you know, highly individualized experiential religiosity that isn't attached to a certain brand. And so I was wondering if you could see um, people sort of brought back to religion or brought, brought back to the supernatural by things that happen in, uh, you know, scientific advancements or just sort of like the human desire for mystery and transcendence, you know, even if we have all these other uh, things that pull us away from um, denominations and that kind of thing. So was, again, I was thinking about the spiritual but not religious and, you know, just the fluidity and where this fits into that. Um, Another thing I was thinking about was, you know, we, we for all these years, we've been trying to talk about in more detail what's an evangelical. You know, you had all these like formal theological definitions and then you had the period about white evangelicals versus others. And a lot of, you know, a lot of Americans don't really dig into this. You know, we're, they're still like kind of this um, role of education. Um, and I was thinking about how, uh, you know, Americans, for a long time have had aspects of disaffiliation, even back to the founding of the country that we don't talk about a lot. You know, there's sort of this element of Americans not being, you know, well-educated about religiosity and the way it's changed over, over the decades. Uh, and whether part of this is, you know, understanding both the values of religious freedom and the values of secularism and free thought as American values. And at a time when, you know, we can't talk about this stuff in the public schools. So the role of education in uh, in all of this, like how are we going to educate ourselves about all of this stuff beyond, you know, kind of an academic level conversation? Well, one is obviously uh, the the whole concrete issue of public secularism and religious liberty. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about um, your conclusions about where that's headed. Um, you know, you said in the book that people's attitudes, you know, did some polling about people's attitudes about the free exercise of religion and, and how much it depended on who's exercising what. Um, and you had, and you basically said Americans are very split about these accommodationist versus separationist issues. So I was just thinking more about like, what will be our key issues? What would be the things that would, you know, whether it was like the way abortion was coalesced, you know, these huge groups of Americans, whether they're, whether you think, or you saw in your, in your reporting or evidence that there'll be some specific concrete things that will get us at, at this specific issues around um, religious liberty. So that's a lot I just threw out there and I'm gonna pass it to Ross. Thanks, Michelle. And thank you, David, Jeffrey, and John for this terrific book. And as Michelle says, it's fascinating and rich and we can only skim the surface. I'll start by saying the thing that surprised me the most in the book was just how large the secular population is um, in the sense that, you know, I've obviously followed these debates fairly 
closely in my capacity as someone who writes a lot about religion. And if you would ask me to guess, if you broke down the population of nuns, so-called, into sort of affirmatively secular versus um, no religion or the, the, your non-religious category. I would have guessed that the non-religious category, the people who are just sort of drifting away from faith and ending up, you know, um, watching football, maybe not on Sunday morning, but I guess they could, you know, have it, have it TVO'd or something, but more likely Sunday afternoon. Um, I would have guessed that population was larger and the sort of, of affirmatively secular population was smaller. So that's one case where this sort of change changed my view a little bit of just sort of what the breakdown is of people um, within this larger sort of unchurched post-practicing religion category. So that was really interesting. A couple thoughts. I mean, one, so you can look at this, you can look at this data and tell a story where 21st century America looks more and more like 19th century Europe, in the sense that 19th century Europe, a lot, especially on the continent, especially in countries like France and Germany and Italy, a lot of politics was organized between, uh, I think you use the term confessional in the books, between a kind of confessional politics of the right usually associated with the Catholic Church in non-Catholic countries with an established Protestantism, and a, a, what I think it's fair to describe as a kind of anti-clerical liberalism, a liberal politics that defines itself primarily not sort of, you know, as just a kind of reforming program, but against the obstructionist reactionary power of um, organized religion. And that, that kind of configuration is pretty alien to, to US politics. You know, there there is in our history various sort of famous atheists and, you know, what you might call anti-clerical moments from time to time. And obviously a tradition going back to, you know, H.L. Mencken and, and beyond of, of sort of, you know, very prominent critics of organized religion. But America has never had an established church, never had a sort of, you know, single coherent organizing position for religion um, and has always been quite religious, um, increasingly so, you could argue, up until the 1950s and 1960s, in a way that made denominational divisions more important than religion versus secularity, um, and just seemed to sort of prevent that kind of 19th century European polarization. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think one, one plausible read on this is this is sort of, you know, America's you know, Germany or France in the 1870s kind of moment um, where you have a, you know, a two political parties, the core of each of which is, you know, has just very different metaphysical, a very different metaphysical perspective, which would not have been true, like even of the North and South when they fought, fought the Civil War, right? And, and where each is sort of organized against each other, where the right is organized around religious fears of secular power and the left is organized around sort of a secular desire to, you know, again, do away with sort of the oppressiveness of traditional religion. So that's, I think, one way to sort of interpret this through a wider historical lens to say we're, you know, we should be studying Otto von Bismarck's Kulturkampf and the Dreyfus affair in France as models for how this for how this might play out in our politics. Um, but just then to complicate that, maybe three three different ways. You know, the first complication is that America still doesn't have an established church, right? Like there is no equivalent of Roman Catholicism in France, um, in in the United States. And and that, you know, already has implications that you see in the two parties coalitions where sort of racial divisions matter, still matter. And you, so you still end up having large numbers of black Protestants and Hispanic Catholics and, and evangelicals even to some extent inside the sort of secular coalition, which doesn't have a clear analog in past forms of religious polarization and may mediate it and mute it to some extent. And then at the same time, to the extent that the right consolidates, right, it it is seems less likely, it seems more likely to consolidate around politics first and religion second than vice versa, because that's the best way to get over the fact that like, you know, Mormons, Catholics, evangelicals, and Orthodox Jews 
to say nothing of maybe traditional Hindus or any other sort of immigrant group that may become part of politics, just have radically different theological perspectives. And so, again, it's not true, you know, there's some parallels in 19th century Europe, it's not really true of those kind of divisions. And in a way that might actually be more dangerous, more polarizing, because it means that it's like you're subsuming this non-political part of your religious identity in favor of the political part of your religious identity, which I do think you can see happening in the Republican Party to some extent. But it's also an area of fracture where, you know, again, you see this in the way that, you know, even in the, in the Trump era, religious polarization actually decreases a little bit because certain groups like Mormons are more less likely to vote for Trump than they were for for Mitt Romney, obviously, but even for George W. Bush, in a way that reflects a particular Mormon history that's very different from evangelical history. So there's that there's that difference. Then a second issue is I I wonder a little bit if what you've captured here is a snapshot in a way of the world five or ten years ago, maybe more than the world right now, in the sense that the kind of secular picture you're describing the kind of secular liberalism, liberalism you're describing seems really familiar to me from like the late Bush era and the Obama era. But in liberal spaces right now, it seems to have been succeeded to some extent by a more militant and zealous vision of, of progressive politics that itself, I think, has rightly been described as carrying somewhat more religious overtones than a kind of like Neil deGrasse Tyson, I really love science. Um, kind of thing. And I'm saying I really love science instead of I bleeping love science, which is what the internet version actually is. But I, I do feel like there's been a shift in liberal politics where like the questions that you ask to capture the secularists may not quite capture some of the sort of semi-religious post-Protestant, if you will, zeal that informs progressive politics on issues of race and gender right now. And then related to that, it would not surprise me if you have a version uh, on sort of the center right of what um, I think it's Hout and others describe happening with polarization in the 1990s, right? Where religious conservatism, the zeal of religious conservatism pushes people who aren't religious conservatives away from religion. But you could imagine a kind of secular progressivism that becomes more and more zealous pushing people, especially in that non-religious camp sort of to the right as a reaction to not, you know, not agreeing with, you know, what gets described as sort of wokeness or, you know, these these kind of things. I think you see a little bit of that in Trump's in Trump's support. And then the final point, which echoes something Michelle, I think, said is, you know, I'm I'm just really curious about how this maps onto sort of non-traditionally religious religious currents, like the spiritual but not religious dimension. Like where do the millennials and and generation Z types who are really into astrology right? Like, where do they fit? The people who are, you know, who are sort of new age believers of some kind who are dabbling in witchcraft or something, you know, this is not the most important religious demographic, but it seems like a more significant one than it was 10 or 15 years ago. And I can easily imagine some people in that demographic answering all your secular questions as secularists, but then, you know, effectively dabbling anew in spirituality in a way that isn't quite captured by by the category. I'm going to throw one sort of big question, and then um, I had a, a couple of questions that are probably similar to both what Michelle and Ross were alluding to. So one of the, the big things for me as someone who looks a lot at socialization and sort of the processes of, of uh, acquiring religious identities is, you know, how do people come to a secular perspective or a worldview, um, if you guys have, have any insight on that? So, you know, childhood religious identity has, you know, has been and continues to be one of the most important predictors of adult religious identity. So if you're raised Catholic, odds are that you're a Catholic as an adult. Um, historically, there's only been one exception to this. So people who are raised outside religion typically became affiliated as an adult, either through marriage or some other way. Um, and so sometimes they were nominally, sometimes they, uh, you know, became fully involved, uh, but that's not really true anymore. If you look at some of the general social surveys and some of our work, you know, Americans raised in non-religious households now are remaining that way as an adult. And I'm wondering, you know, if this work, um, you know, pro sort of provides any way to understand that. Is there a socialization process whereby people adopt secular perspectives? Uh, are they learning it in their homes? Are they learning it through popular culture? 
you know, because without secular practices, you, you, you all in the book mentioned the sort of difficulty of identifying secular um, behaviors, uh, which I think is right. And there, there are a limited number of institutions also, uh, which people can join. So it's hard to know how this would happen or what the mechanism would be. But I would, I, I'd love if we could sort of wrestle with that a little bit. Um, then related to Michelle's point on the kind of fluidity uh, of identity, this is something I'm really interested in too. You know, a lot of surveys of American religion find that there's a, a good amount of dynamism and churn, right? So that we know over people's lifetimes, um, whether it's denominational change or, or changes in religious tradition, we know there's some amount of that happening. And, you know, if you got, you could talk about the extent to which people are moving about through your four different categories, are, is there a movement between non-religionists and secularists, or are these pretty hardened identities that, that remain fairly stable? Um, so I'll, I'll pause there. I know you know there's been a lot of questions thrown on the table, and uh, I invite you to sort of engage with any of them. Really, I think there's a lot of good stuff that uh, we could talk about. Thank you, Dan. Just just before we get into answering um, the important questions, I, I do have to address something that Ross brought up, which is. The idea that a non-religionist would not be able to watch football <laughs> on a Sunday morning. What I forgot to mention is that uh, that person is on the West Coast and they're watching an East Coast game. Ah, uh, this is East East Coast privilege once again <laughs> has marred has marred my interpretation of America, and I apologize. And that's really all I've got. So, <laughs> if I could just pick up on actually the very first point Michelle made, which is the question I think is the right one for a reporter to ask. Is this a movement? And this is one of the questions that we pose in the book. Are we witnessing the emergence of a secular left to parallel the religious right? And I think the answer to that is we don't know yet. Um, and the reason we don't know yet is precisely, I think, the point that Michelle was making, which is it's hard to point to a particular leader or even a given organization that captures the secular surge. Um, Thus far, there is no secular Jerry Falwell. Um, if you think of Falwell as one of the instrumental people in the creation of the modern uh, religious right, that doesn't mean that there isn't space for such a person. I actually think there is, but it would require some entrepreneurship in order to assemble a secular coalition because um, these are people who don't agree with one another on even <laughs> what to call themselves. Um, but that's not unique. That was actually true of evangelicals two generations ago. Um, in fact, at the time, people didn't use the term evangelical um, the way we do now. So I, I would say we're sort of in wait and see mode, whether or not a movement will emerge in a conventional sense with leaders and spokespeople and organizations and such. But certainly the potential's there, very strong potential. I was really struck by your thoughts, um, Ross, on whether or not what we've captured is a snapshot of the way the world, or at least the political left was five or 10 years ago, uh, which is an intriguing idea. I don't know if I would agree with that, but I do think you are correct that there is a zealotry today that maybe we haven't fully picked up on. Um, and this idea that perhaps for some on the left, their politics has come to substitute for religion. It has become the new religion. You didn't quite put it that way, but I got the sense that that's maybe maybe what you meant. And I would say, I, th I think actually we have the tools to test that. We certainly see hints of it already in our data, just simply the fact that um, the secularists as a group, they are very politically engaged. They are not on the sidelines. They are very active in Democratic Party politics, beyond the party, they are just a highly politically engaged group. And so I would actually agree that you may be onto something. I'd like to think that the book isn't already out of date. I won't go so far. As to it's, say a, it's, a, it's a timeless work. I want to be clear. <laughs> uh, but but the, the basic idea that what we're describing is a moving target, I think is exactly right. And I think we have seen some evolution on what we might loosely call the secular left, even over the last uh, few years. Um, Jeff, why don't I turn it over to you to see if you have any reactions? Sure. Thanks, Dave. I, I think I would like to start with the football question as well and say that tr <laughs> true, true secularists actually would be watching football on a Sunday morning, but they would be watching British soccer and insist on calling it football. Uh, Non-religionists, probably not. Um, I'll, I'll just start with the, Ross's comment about the... Um, about progressivism and sort of the zealotry, but but also the um, 
a more pro-religious angle to it. I, I think since Dave and I are sitting in South Bend, Indiana, we can't help but mention Pete Buttigieg, who probably more effectively tied progressivism to scripture than, than maybe any, any white politician, but maybe since Jesse Jackson or, or somebody like that. I, I think that one thing that, that we don't want to overlook and that we do frankly overlook in the book is the religious secularists. I think you would call Buttigieg a religious secularist. And if you look at our data, the religious secularists are actually more liberal and more democratic than the non-religionists. Um, and so I think there is space for sort of a, a religious progressivism of mainline Protestants and of some parts of the Catholic Church to kind of join together with the secularists around a common set of concerns about justice uh, and equality and climate change and, and science and things like that, that that may start to happen. And it may be similar to what, what you're saying is going on in the Republican coalition, that really politics becomes the the binding element rather than religion or spirituality or, or even secularism. You know, one of the things um, that Michelle brought up that, that Dave and I actually continue to work on with a, a graduate student here at Notre Dame is the possibility of uh, atheist or secularist candidates. I think we will see more, uh, I'm not sure atheist, but more secular candidates. Um, and, and one of the things that we found, we actually found in the book, is that kind of the the thing that inhibits people inhibits the levels of support for secularist candidates is they are viewed as untrustworthy and unpatriotic. Um, and so we're trying to do some work to figure out, well, what if we had a, a very patriotic or very trustworthy secularist candidate? Um, a military veteran, for example, might might be okay on the patriotism angle. Um, we haven't had such politicians yet. Um, you know, somebody like Buttigieg, actually not a secularist, but a military veteran. Um, but but that will be interesting going forward, I think, is, is as we see um, more and more secular candidates are some types of characteristics or some types of profiles um, more, more successful than others. Um, I think the one last thing I'll say, um, and again, work of a graduate student here at Notre Dame or a former graduate student who's doing more work on the idea of secularism as a movement. There is some evidence of sort of a, a very nascent movement of, um, I would say right now, the Secular Coalition for America is kind of taking the lead. They are going to various state democratic conventions um, and speaking to those conventions are organizing a secular caucus within state democratic parties. Um, and so I think we're seeing increasing um, efforts to mobilize and for some group to take the lead as, um, you know, happened with the moral majority first in the Christian right movement and then the Christian coalition. And, and I think you do need that central group that that is sort of the the mobilizing or centrifugal force around that group, and and maybe the secular coalition uh, is that group right now. Um, Dan, I just want to be sure we, we've not forgotten about your questions, but yeah. Uh, but maybe before we get to that, Ross, Michelle, was there anything you wanted to add or take issue with? Well, I mean, one of the things that. Um, Ross mentioned, and you know, I, I, you always always hear people talk about Europe. Like, is are we heading towards Europe? Is that sort of the model? And uh, you know, sometimes I wonder if there's another place that could be a better model or something like that. Like, it seems like that's the only question that matters to a lot of people because they worry, especially religious people, that you know, we're becoming more secular. But you know, as Ross said, we're you know, it's such a different model that we have here in the United States. And so I wonder if. You know, if there, I don't know, I just was, I, I, every time that comes up, I always think like, well, is there some other place that would be more productive for us to think about? I mean, it's hard to envision right now, but when you think about the overlap of all these groups, like there are nuns who are religious, there are nuns who are, um, you know, not all nuns are secularists. Like there's a lot of over, I mean, look, what you've done is you raised a whole bunch of different questions instead of the ones that we've been using for decades. Like, do you go to church? Do you think their religion important? But it's like you said, it's so complicated and overlapping. And I wonder if part of it is, you know, it's it's really 
it's dramatic to envision the country as a place where we have, you know, a mix of things, <laughs> you know, like where, where you have, you know, people who are religious secularists and secularists and atheists and religious people, I mean, that, that that's just the norm um, as opposed to sort of two sides, but I guess with two parties. And yet, since your book chose to, you know, you're not looking at, you know, different images of God and stuff. You're looking at more political issues if like that kind of sets it up. When you say confessional, that meant that the parties would either be a religious party or a not religious party? Yeah. Wow. In fact, um, I think that the question of whether or not a comparison with Europe in general or particularly European countries is helpful actually speaks to one of the questions that Dan asked, which was about as he put it, the fluidity of religious identity in the U.S. and the fact that we've long had this dynamism and churn in religion, which translates to religious trends not simply being high religiosity at the time of the founding and a decline ever since, but rather ebbs and flows over American history, with the 1950s arguably being the high point, the 1950s, not the 1850s, the 1950s. I think what we're witnessing right now is a period of tremendous churn, but I don't think that should necessarily lead us to the conclusion that therefore America is on its way to becoming France. Right. Because we have seen revivals and reawakenings in the past. Now, I'm not going to go so far as to predict that we're about to see another great awakening, but I am willing to believe that there are going to be religious entrepreneurs, and there already are, who will figure out ways to win at least some of the, the, the non-religious and maybe even some of those secularists back to religion by stripping it of any hint of politics, because that's what a lot of people have an allergic reaction to. And to the extent that happens, I think you might very well see at the very least a plateau and maybe even a dip in the, the surge that we've described. And then our book will truly be outdated and then we'll have to write another one. The Europe question, I, I have always thought of the question a little differently than Ross, which is just, are, are we becoming, are we going through the, a secularization process where religion is essentially dying? Um, and, and I've always thought that, that that's not the case because um, the, the hard core of religion doesn't tend to, to fade away. Um, you know, the, the, tr the most devout evangelicals, the most traditionalist Roman Catholics, those numbers don't fade as fast as sort of your, your kind of nominal mainline Protestants, your, your Presbyterian who attends, uh, you know, eight to ten times a year. Those are the groups that have really declined and made way for this rise of the nuns. We're also becoming an increasingly less white country, and it's white people who are the most non-religious. Um, immigrants tend to bring a stronger religious faith, and as, you know, African Americans are also significantly more um, religious than white people. Um, in, in terms of the confessional party, I, I think that is, to some extent, what inhibits us from becoming late 19th century Europe. First of all, the Democratic Party continues to have this very significant base of people of color who are significantly more religious. And I also think that, um, I, I think I think Ross's point about wokeness and secular progressivism perhaps working in a in a Houghton Fisher sort of way to drive people away from secularism or non-religion. I, I think Donald Trump played on that very well. Um, you know, the, the religious symbolism that we saw at the, the Capitol attacks, the idea of Christian nationalism. Um, I would guess that most of the people who, at least a lot of the people who really strongly supported Trump or people who are at those rallies holding Jesus signs are not terribly religious. They're not often attending mass or, or worship services, uh, and but they identify with religious symbolism. And so they're more nationalist really than they are Christian. Um, and I think that element of the Republican Party, especially as the Republican Party increasingly becomes uh, a party with a base among working class whites, non-college educated whites, that part of the party that is not so religiously devout may increase and may grow more influential and inhibit, again, sort of a confessional party system 
Uh, on Dan's question about um, how do people come to a secular identity, I, I think that's an extremely important question. I'm not sure we have much data um, to really answer that. Um, you know, we sort of toyed with the idea of, of nonness or just non-religiosity being a halfway house between religion and secularism. Um, and we've got a little bit of evidence that that happens, especially spurred by some democratic partisanship and liberal ideology, people who grew up non-religious can, can be pushed into secularism. But I also think it's probably more politics than just sort of the traditional social identity process we've seen with religious um, identity and affiliation, that, that politics is driving this to a greater extent. And so it, it may not be something that happens in childhood, although people who are really raised in science may, may come into adulthood with a stronger secular identity. And I think um, Michelle's point about the pandemic and the vaccine, that's become so relevant, not just to us as adults, but to our kids. It happens in my daughter's middle school, who's getting vaccinated and who's not. And I think people's identity as believers in science um, maybe something that's socialized and that may lead to, to greater secularism. In the book, there was uh, there were you know different theories about why this is happening, including that the American enemy went from you know I think it said like from godless communism to Islamic fundamentalists or something like that. That there's these different meta things going on, uh -huh. um, and so uh, the also I'm, I don't know how central will be to young Americans, but I, I, those images uh, on January 6th at the Capitol, you know, are very powerful. And I wonder if that'll sort of, how that'll play out. I mean, for different communities, but I mean, you have an image of, you know, religious extremism in our own country. And, and, I, and I wonder how, you know, if Roe v. Wade is overturned, if that could be another another moment. I mean, I'm just always like trying to think what are the things that would, that you look back at and you're like, oh, yeah. that's like the cultural, that's the thing that, um, and also race is such a big factor. I mean, um, Sam Perry and, and Andrew Whitehead's, I don't remember what book this, they just told me this, I don't remember which of their books, but they were talking about um, that of, of white American nuns, 42% of them are either uh, friendly or what they call true believers of Christian nationalism. You know, so they're not affiliated, but they identify with these statements like your secular statements. So there's just there's like so much go going on um, and race being a real biggie. We didn't talk about the Republicans in the book. You talk about the uh, I think it was the non um, was it the non-religionists that there's a component of secularism within the Republican Party uh, that was not big, but that was worth mentioning. Right. Yeah. Um we actually not in the book and in, in earlier work we actually found that there were there were some true secularists at the 2012 republican convention but they were ron paul supporters um uh so his, his supporters were pretty secular they they disappeared uh as rand didn't do as well in 2016. um but yeah i think they're i think trumpism and non-religiosity there's a there's a relationship there and they they may not be people who identify themselves as nuns they they many of them may be but a lot of them i think are people who would say i'm a baptist or i'm a catholic or i'm a methodist right but they very rarely attend um and and religion is not a big part of their life but they identify strongly with with a faith community and they identify very strongly with the idea of America as a Christian nation and that we're losing our traditions. Mm. Uh, Trump obviously appealed to that base um, very effectively. Um, and so it doesn't, the, the part about 42% of nuns um, identifying with Christian nationalism, that doesn't actually surprise me. Mm. Um, now, whether it has any effect on the Republican Party, I don't think those nuns are going to say, well, no, we should sort of push push the brakes on trying to overturn Roe v. Wade. I think they're perfectly happy with that. It, it may not be what they truly care about. So I, I, you know, I do think that... Because they're more men or what makes you say that? Yeah. 
I, I just don't think I don't think that's a very salient issue to them. That they're they're certainly willing to identify with the pro life movement, but they'd be also okay if Roe v. Wade um, was upheld. There is a question in the chat about the breakdown between men and women uh, among nuns, and and men are more likely to be nuns, and I believe Dave, correct me if I'm wrong, that they are also more likely to be secularists. Yep, secularists than, than uh, are. definitely more likely to find um, men than secularists than women. All right. I want to thank our authors and our panelists uh, for a really uh, great discussion. I would encourage everyone who was listening to definitely go out and check out this book. It's uh, really important. And if you spend any amount of time um, trying to understand this group, this book provides a lot of insights into who they are and what they care about. Thanks for listening to the AEI Events Podcast. You can find new episodes each week on your favorite podcast apps. Please remember to subscribe and leave a review. We'll see you next week.